Patriots, welcome to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we are talking about another Taylor Lorenz mess the Washington Post has to clean up, Elon Musk potentially getting out of the Twitter deal, Mexico's president skipping out on the Summit of America's meeting, and how it represents our declining influence in the region. And we finish up with the ineptness of Karine Jean-Pierre as press secretary. Next, on Living with Liberty. does Taylor Lorenz still have a job as a reporter? I get it. She may not have any other marketable skills, but usually when you as an employee get uh, things wrong and continue to get things wrong, you eventually get fired. Apparently when you go on MSDNC or whatever it was and stage a breakdown, you get some leeway in screwing up on the job and you get a little more leeway in making your employer look bad. It seems. And yes, I believe it was a stage breakdown over mean internet people because not long after that, Taylor Lorenz special on MSNBC, she goes out and doxes the person behind the libs of TikTok account. So yeah, I have zero belief that her little therapy session on MSNBC was nothing more than a stunt to garner a little sympathy because mean internet people were calling her out for being a hack journalist. Well, Jeffy B's Washington Compost had to cover up for Tay-Tay again, This time because she made up talking to a YouTuber that goes by the handle That Umbrella Guy for a story about them making a bunch of money covering the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Now, we have people on YouTube covering these things because the media doesn't want to. The media doesn't do it right or they lie. And now we've got Taylor Lorenz going out, writing a... Uh, basically a hit piece on why uh, why this is wrong or what's going on with it or, uh, you know, I don't know. I didn't read the Washington Post piece in its entirety. I have an Epic Times piece here, though, titled The Washington Post Admits Claims in the Article About YouTubers Were Inaccurate by Zachary Stiber. Inaccurate would be a nice way to put it. It's more like they were fabrications by a lazy and unethical journalist. Now, the, even though I didn't read the Washington Post piece, 
Epic Times is reputable, and, and they laid it out pretty well what this piece entailed. So I'll link it in the description box. You can read it for yourself. And I say at this point, if you believe anything that Lorenz writes, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. This is yet another uh, instance of where she's being called out or she's being um, uh, kind of highlighted as being an unethical journalist and, and not doing having any journalistic integrity, let's put it that way. Now, I have a few snippets from the piece here. Uh, the first one goes like this. Columnist Taylor Lorenz wrote that she asked a YouTube personality with the moniker That Umbrella Guy for comment before the publication of her piece, which claimed that the person in similar accounts had hauled in large amounts of money by taking advantage of the lack of coverage in many outlets of the trial uh, involving Amber uh, Heard and Johnny Depp. But Lorenz's statement was false, the Post acknowledged in an editor's note. Well, we got clean up aisle seven before Jeffy B loses more of that Amazon money in a defamation suit. Walking back statements has become a bit of a tradition in, in, in D.C., it seems, but it didn't stop there. This whole story was riddled with lies and the story uh, that Taylor Lorenz wrote, uh, not this Epic Times piece here. So the, the, her whole story is riddled with lies, and it's just basically the compost trying to sweep it under the rug, trying to make it go away. So let's go back to the piece for more. It says this. Further, the Post admitted it stealthily edited the story to remove the false claim without initially noting to readers what had happened. So the Post admitted the way the correction was handled was a violation of their corrections policy. I'd like to amend my statement from earlier. If you believe anything the Washington Post prints, I can't help you. It's plainly obvious it, being the Washington Post, is nothing more than a propaganda outlet at this point. You already knew that, though. But it's, it's, if you don't believe it now, after they admit that we, hey, we, we, we just kind of swept this under the rug. We, we went in stealth mode here on our correction of this, it just corrected it, dumped the original thing down the memory hole, and we didn't tell anybody about it at, at first. It's a propaganda outlet that's straight out of 1984. And if you don't see this, if you still think the Washington Post and Taylor Lorenz are reputable uh, in, in a, a realm of journalism, I can't help you. How can they be trusted to bring the real story when they have admitted to stealthily editing the story? How can you trust the Washington Post is giving you the actual facts? You can't. You, you can't. When they admit that they stealthily edited the story and that later, oh, whoops, they got caught. So, yeah, we violated our own policy when we did that. They don't do their job to holding government officials to account. They don't do their jobs in reporting, in reporting the facts. It shouldn't be a mystery as to why the Washington Post and other legacy outlets are not trusted and not to be trusted. But I'm sure internally they think everything is fine. They're, they're like that meme with the dog sitting in the middle of the fire. This is fine. We're fine. Everything's burning up around them. Their whole credibility and, and everything that the Washington Post has built and stood for over the years burning around them. Now, this is fine. Yeah, we're going to keep stealthily sweeping things under the rug. Yeah, this made us, Taylor made us look bad again. Uh, we'll just sweep that, uh, you know, and dump it down the memory hole. 
Now, the Post may be trying to do the right thing here because they see the writing on the wall. The Post knows legacy media as a whole isn't trusted by many anymore. But, but again, they're, it's too little too late at this point. I mean, you, you could start rebuilding it if you would have came out and said, yeah, this was we screwed up on this one again. Sorry, we're going to do better. But you, you sweep it under the rug, and then after the fact, you admit that you violate your, your own corrections policy. I mean, who's going to trust you? I, why, why pay whatever it is to get the paper hard copy of the post or even subscribe to the online version anymore? Why? You're not getting the truth. They're, they're not printing anything worthy. You, they're, they're printing it up, and then you have to go do your own research because you can't trust these guys anymore. And you haven't been able to for a long time, honestly. But, I mean, they're just, well, you just do your own research. Why bother at this point with a newspaper? Why bother? They're not doing the research for you. Do your own. Save you money. It, it makes me wonder if, if they're not, you know, if they're admitting this, if the Washington Post is admitting this, hey, we, we, this happened, we screwed up, we violated our policy, because they got caught lying trying to hide the body. It, it, the fun doesn't stop there, though. I got more from this Epic Times piece. So, from again, again, from the Epic Times piece, that umbrella guy said in a statement that besides lying about contacting him or her, so they don't know if it's a him or her, just says that umbrella guy. Could be a her, I suppose. You just It's an internet name, right? Anyway, it says, uh, go, going on here, Lorenz mischaracterized the account's coverage of the trial. Taylor Lorenz wrote an obvious smear piece conflating depth support with financial gain. So there again, she's being dishonest. Continuing on, she flagrantly ignored the fact that I've covered this case for a year while mischaracterizing what Adam Waldman, who is one of Depp's lawyers, said during the Depp trial. She got the factual items about the relationship, their relationship, wrong as well. Crazier, she lied about contacting me in the Washington Post and tried covering it up after I called it out publicly, the YouTuber said. So, what more do you need? Who, who's, going to, who's going to lie, right? And who's, just think about the dynamics here for a second. We have a YouTuber whose who's very livelihood I think that that umbrella guy has a pretty large following. So we have a YouTuber here whose livelihood literally depends on them being ethical and honest and and, and kind of telling the truth and uh, gaining people's trust. Or you've got the Washington Post who just admitted to covering this up and who's been covering up for corruptocrats and everything else for years. And Taylor Lorenz, who's a known liar anyway. Uh, who are you going to believe here? If some somebody might look at the statement say by uh, by that umbrella guy and say, "Yeah, right." I believe them. I we know what the media is at this point. I believe that umbrella guy. They weren't contacted, which the post acknowledged, and then and then it goes further. Then that umbrella guy goes further. She how she ignored this. How Taylor Lorenz ignored their coverage of this case. How long until the Washington Post has had enough and shows Lorenz the door? How long until they've had enough of declining readership 
and actually start doing what they're supposed to do, and that's write well-researched stories. I don't have to agree with them, right? And if I if I agree with any anything anybody says or writes, then we're not improving as a society. So I don't need to agree with everything they write, but it does need to be factually based. How long until the Washington Post and truthfully other uh, me, uh, other media outlets, newspapers, whatever, have had enough of this, have had enough of their declining revenue, have had enough of their readers and, and listeners and whatever else jumping to the independents because they're actually getting the truth there from the independent guys and gals. How long until they say enough, they show these hack journalists the door, they get back to writing well-researched pieces that... You may or may not agree with, but at least it's factual. At least you can trust the information that's there. I mean, think of it this way. If this was you or I, and we would have had the string of screw-ups and corrections that Taylor Lorenz has had over the last year, year and a half, whatever, we would have been shown the door a long time ago by our employers. Do you have a question or comment for the show? Send me an email, ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. I'll answer your question or read the comment here on the show. Feedback is a gift, and I'm not above poking a little fun at myself. I promise I won't run to MSNBC and ask for a special so I can tell the world about all the mean Internet people bullying me. Is Elon Musk going to complete the Twitter deal or not? That seems to be the burning question of the day. The dispute between himself and Twitter over disclosure of the amount of bots on the platform, which Twitter estimates to be less than 5% of users, but Musk believes Twitter is undercounting them. And he wants, Elon Musk wants Twitter to turn over the data to him for his review. First off, how can Twitter not do any better than to estimate the amount of bots on the platform? I get that the number changes daily based on how many there are potentially wiped out and how many get activated. So I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a fluid number. I get that. But, but we're not talking about grains of sand here. I, I would think it would be fairly simple to get a calculation that gets close or better than an estimate of well, it's less than 5%. You should be able to be down to some pretty decent numbers, I would think. Twitter's business model is based on harvesting and selling data. I'm willing to bet they have a number that is pretty close to exact in regards to how many bots inhabit the platform. Second, and a potential sticking point legally as Musk waived his right to due diligence uh, inspection on the Twitter operations and their accounting practices. So that could prevent him from getting uh, that information. Now, I think that was a bit of a bold move on his part, given he's looking to buy something for $44 billion. I would think you'd want to take a good peek under the hood before shelling out that kind of money. Now, there is a $1 billion bio clause, which, you know what, everyone seems to make a big deal out of because it is a lot of money. But we have to put it in context of Musk's overall net worth. And when you do that, you see it's actually, eh, for him, it's not that much. So Elon Musk is worth about $200 billion right now. It's been declining with the stock market declines and some of this Twitter drama and everything else. So it's been hovering right around $200 billion. So if you think about it, that $1 billion buyout is only a half 
of a percent of his overall net worth. Whereas the $44 billion purchase price is 22% of his overall net worth. So you can see that uh, I find this $44 billion deal, it's actually a bad one. I've only got a billion dollar buyout fine. It's only half percent of my net worth. It's worth it. So backing, backing out and paying a billion, that's not a big deal. People want to make a big deal out of it. Oh, it's a billion dollars. He's not going to do that. Well, you look at the overall context of his net worth. It's not that big of a deal. So let, let me put it in kind of real numbers here for you and I. So let's say you had $100,000 in the bank that you've saved up and you're going to go buy a house. And in the contract for purchase of said house, you put that uh, there's a half of a percent of uh, the purchase price uh, as far as the buyout clause goes. That would be $500. Now, do you want to be out $500? Uh, no, who wants to be out $500, right? It's a lot of money. I think even a billion is still a lot of money to Elon Musk. But do you want to be out of the $500 because you put that in the buyout clause? No, you don't want to be out of that $500. But if something came up where you needed to back out, where something uh, just didn't seem right about that house, something came up in your life and you no longer can buy that house because something happened major and you need that money to pay for that instead, would losing that $500 be that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things? Not really. Uh, you'd hate to lose it, but it's it's not, it's a half percent of what I've got saved up. It's, it's not really that big of a stinger. So this all points then to the question that needs to be asked. Is Musk having, is Musk asking for this data knowing legally he may not have a right to do so or may not even have a right to it? Is that so he can have some sort of way to save face by backing out of the deal? I'm sure Musk has some sort of knowledge of the inner workings of Twitter, given that there's an agreement in place. I'm sure he did some sort of due diligence ahead of it before he threw $44 billion on the table for it. It's naive to think he doesn't know things about Twitter. Is this now a case where he is playing this acquisition over and over in his head, running through the various scenarios based on what he knows about Twitter and the Twitter business model? And he's having a second thought about going through with the purchase. Is he not seeing that, uh, that he has a way to a return on his investment if he goes through with the purchase? It certainly could be a plausible explanation. At the end of the day, Musk is a businessman after all, and his purchase of Twitter isn't going to be some altruistic endeavor. He's going to want to have some sort of uh, return on it. He doesn't want to just buy it. He's not just buying it to to have a nice place for freedom of speech. And here, if I make money on it, fine. Here, I don't. He's going to want some sort of return on it. He's not going to pay $44 billion for it and then, you know, watch the, the value of it lose, you know, get cut in half. I mean, I'd think at a minimum he'd want to say, okay, we just want to maintain the $44 billion valuation I paid for it. I mean, so it's not like it's an altruistic endeavor. He's going to look at this. And he's going to say, look, I don't, uh, um, I don't really actually feel that great about this as far as a business endeavor anymore. I'm going to uh, let me back out. I'll pay my billion-dollar back-out fee, whatever. It's a half percent of my overall net worth and, and move on and find something else. I mean, so, so at the end of the day, who knows? Only Elon Musk can answer those questions. Um, I, I did see just a total um, um, uh, transparency here. I did see that. Uh, an article. I didn't read it. I just saw the headline, so I don't know exactly what's entailed in it, but I did see something where Twitter might be giving Musk uh, 
this data that he's asking for. So there again, I mean, if if that is indeed the case, he could look at it and say, yeah, this is, uh, ooh, I don't like the way this looks, and back out of the deal. So we'll see. I mean, even with the data, he, he could say, yeah, I'm going to back out of this deal. I don't like what I'm seeing. So that uh, sounds like a lot more to come. We'll see how it goes on the Twitter front. Okay, on to our next story. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is going to skip the Summit of Americas meeting in Los Angeles, making it the latest foreign relations embarrassment for President Biden, who assured us that he would return the United States to its role as a world leader. He would be that great unifier. He would put us back at the top that everybody wants the United States help. Everybody wants to come uh, and and pander to the U.S. and ask them to help, and, and we're going to lead everybody out of the darkness. That's what Biden said. He said, we're going, I'm going to return this country to its, its role as a, a, a leader on the global stage. Now, what's the reason the Mexican president is skipping out on the meeting? Hey, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela were not invited to the meeting. Now, this is a meeting between uh, North America, Central America, South America. So you've got countries from uh, basically the whole region, the whole hemisphere here uh, in the Americas that, that are invited to this meeting. Well, except for a few here, it seems. And, and that's the sticking point for uh, um, the Mexican president. Now, part of the hope for this summit, and part of this, and, and this deals a blow to what it sounds like is going on behind the scenes, um, but part of the, the hopes for the summit was to address the migrant situation. And now that agenda item is probably dead because Mexico is planning to send a low-level official to the meetings instead. So they're not, that low-level official is not going to be able to agree to anything, really. They'll just be there. Hey, here's, they'll, they'll air Mexico's grievances and that'll be it. They, they won't be able to engage in any high-level talks. They won't be able to make any decisions on behalf of Mexico. Uh, Lopez Albrador is not going to give any authority of this low-level official to, to make any decisions on his behalf. That's just not how it works in, in those countries when it comes to the power structure. It's the head, uh, the head guy makes those decisions. They'll send a representative. Here, here's your talking points, and that's it. So here's the thing, though. The thing about this whole uh, agenda item of, of migration and uh, the migrant situation, it this doesn't need to be an agenda item in this meeting with these other countries. The only agenda items that need to be accomplished in relation to mass migration is finishing the wall and quit giving out free crap to people who come here illegally. Now, before anyone starts in with the we need to have compassion speech, I want you to consider these questions. Do you own a home? Is that home fence in for reasons other than to keep kids or pets in the yard? If you don't own a home, if you rent it, or if you rent an apartment, do you lock your doors? Would you allow me to set up camp in your yard or stroll through your front door without permission, claim a bedroom, and then raid your refrigerator and use your amenities without paying a dime for it? If you answered yes to questions two and three there, and no to question four, you can stop talking right now about how we should be letting people come here illegally. You are not a serious person, as you would be personally against what you're advocating for by having open borders and letting people come here illegally. 
I don't have a problem with asylum seekers who can truly demonstrate the need because they're coming from somewhere, they're oppressed, they're threats, they're, they're subject to violence, they're threatened some way, shape, or form. I don't have a problem with it. I've covered that previously. We need to be open and caring and compassionate in that realm. I don't take any issue with people who come to America through the legal channels either. I welcome that, in fact, as these people are willing to work harder and they have more pride in this country than some of those born here. And they really do make our country a better place. They make it a richer place. I've said that before. So save the talk about me not being kind, caring, and compassionate. It boils down to do it the right way and and figure out how we're going to do this. Not just our borders open, we're, not, we're just going to give you some papers and release you to the interior. We're going to fly you all over the place. That's, that's an obvious uh, subversion of the law and of the American people. So I don't have a problem. If you can demonstrate, hey, I'm from a war-torn country because of my political views, I am uh, threatened, I've been jailed before in my country, I've been censored, whatever, I don't have a problem. Come seek asylum, do it the right way, fill out the paperwork, etc. The problem with the border is it's not those people. There, there may be a few of those. But we also have all kinds of other people, bad people coming across the border. And that's been proven already because they've picked tons of them up who have killed our citizens, who have robbed our citizens, terrorists, known terrorists. They've, they've caught a couple. So don't tell me about it. having an open border is kind and compassionate if you're not willing to, to, to uh, do those four things, that answer those four questions. In the, uh, in the way that shows that you have an affirmation for open borders. Because it's the same thing. It's, the United States is our property as a whole. It's our country. We're a sovereign nation. Just like your personal property is, is your sovereign nation, so to speak. That's your place. You own that. If you wouldn't let people come and in, in, in camp out in your yard without your permission, if you wouldn't let them just stroll in your front door, claim a bedroom, and and, you know, read your refrigerator, use your cell phone, play your video games, watch your, your Netflix, whatever, without paying a dime for it. Don't tell me about open borders then. You're a fraud. You're a fake. Now, we have a process. As I mentioned, we have a process in place, and it needs to be followed when it comes uh, to, to immigration. Every country does. Let's put it in reverse for a second. What would happen if I decided to cross over into Mexico illegally in violation of their immigration laws? I'd be subject to whatever penalty they have in place. And the people here in the United States, when that news story broke that I was caught, apprehended by Mexican authorities for illegally uh, crossing the border, people here in this country would say, I got what I deserve for breaking the law. So why then do we look the other way when migrants, when migrants break our laws? Because we get force-fed that, oh, it's the, the compassionate thing to do. No. If, if, we're not, if we're not willing to say, okay, Mexico, you've got to let us um, illegally migrate into your country too. You, you can't say it's a compassionate thing. To, how is not, that not being compassionate then if, if Mexico is, is enforcing their, their uh, immigration laws? Why do we look the other way in the name of compassion? It's, it, we look the other way because 
we're, we're afraid of getting called names. Do it legally. That's that's the that's the whole point here. We have a process. We have a legal process. It's a setup and established. Every country does because oh, by the way, we, we kind of know countries like borders. They like being sovereign nations. They have a group of people that uh, have a like culture and heritage that um, you know they kind of like to to uh, be together and and, and kind of have their own self rule, whatever that looks like. So countries kind of like borders. And then there's there, there's these statements. This, these are pot calling the kettle black statements from the regime here. So we have uh, Karine Jean-Pierre saying this. She says, we do not believe that dictators should be invited. <laughs> well, okay. Um, hmm. uh, we'll get to that one in a minute because we got another beauty here. It says this. The Biden administration said it would not include autocratic governments that jail opponents and rig elections. <laughs> do these people even understand? Do they even know? Do they even listen to themselves when they say this? Let me, okay, so there's a little bit more to that statement. Let's go. So Biden administration said it would not include autocratic governments that jail opponents and rig elections pointing to a declaration from the 2001 summit in Quebec City where the region's governments committed to barring any government that breaks with democratic order from future gatherings. So by all rights, we, the United States should be barred from this, this gathering. Do these people, do, are their ears and their mouth connected or do they just speak into a vacuum? I mean, the lack of self-awareness is thick with this regime and with our government. Dictators shouldn't be invited. Okay, why do we have summits with, with Xi, Xi Jinping then? If we don't deal with dictators, why are we talking about uh, getting back into Iran and, and, and renegotiating that deal, that debacle of a deal the Obama administration put in place? If we don't deal with dictators, why do we continue to engage in trade and business dealings with China but we turn up our noses at Cuba and Venezuela and demand they change before we open up trading relations with them. Well, you already know the answer to that. It's money. Because it's, it's a lot easier to bully a small country from which we have no real need to trade with. We get, we, we're the United States. We, we can manufacture, we can purchase whatever we want. So it's, it's easy to bully a small country from which we have no real need to trade with versus a country that is the second largest economy in the world and produces essential goods for our market. Then there's the whole Biden will not deal with autocratic governments at jail opponents and rig elections topic. <laughs> Jeez. I, I, well, talk about talk into the vacuum. I'm I'm going to speak words, but I'm not even going to listen to what's coming out of my mouth. So so how about this? How about General Michael Flynn? Anyone? How about Rudy Rudy Giuliani getting raided? Or what about Project Veritas getting the same treatment as Flynn and Giuliani? How about the 2,000 Meals eye opener? So it's okay if our government raids and jails its opponents and and intimidates them and engages in shady electric uh, election practices. But if you as another country do it, you can't come to our table. You can't come to this America's summit. This just goes to show that the elitism of our government's officials doesn't stop at our borders. It's an equal opportunity thing. We're, re- 
we're readily available to pick and choose on the world stage who we like and don't like, who we want to invite to the table or don't based on, you know, ever-changing criteria. Now, does our government, do these, do our supposed leaders, what do they think of, of these other countries to, to do something like that? To, well, we just, went, we just have all kinds of questions about our, our uh, election. Uh, we've been harassing and jailing um, uh, opponents of our government, of our rule, if you will, the Biden administration. We've, we've been uh, making life tough for them. I mean, do our leaders, do they really think that the leaders of other countries, particularly those that are autocratic in nature, don't, do they think they don't see what has been going on here in this country and recognize that it's the same tactics they've used in their own countries to solidify their uh, power? Uh, Do they, it's amazing how it seems that our government thinks everybody else is stupid. I mean, are the despots around the world really not that observant in how we treat them versus how we treat China? Doubt it. They see the double standard, and that's why the push by Mexico's president to have Cuba and Venezuela included. And honestly, he's not wrong in that. The, the principle here is, is he's not wrong in that. If you're looking at it from a principle standpoint. It's a different story if we had the same policy in place for all authoritarian regimes that jailed opponents, rigged elections, and didn't uh, observe basic human rights. Then the exclusionary case could be made based on that principle. If we applied it the same, uh, the same principle to everybody, then you have a case for not inviting Cuba and Venezuela. Now, what I really hope this administration and truthfully all the mediocres in our government don't do is that they don't wonder why China's influence continues to grow in our region as well as globally. Nobody likes a hypocrite. And the United States is a gigantic one right now and has been for a long time. Obviously, the isolationist tactics of this administration and ones prior to Trump have not worked. And I say prior to Trump because Trump actually engaged, he engaged North Korea. He engaged Venezuela a little bit, Cuba. He, he didn't isolate them. He engaged them. Now, did he give in to them? No, but he at least engaged them and talked to them. So this isolationist tactic of picking winners and losers, saying, well, we don't like you, um, and because we you know, have a, uh, an economy and, and whatever, 100 times more than you, we're going to... Cuba, we're yeah, we're just not going to deal with you. But uh, China's kind of doing the same thing. Oh, about China's, you know, we can make a lot of money in China, so yeah, we'll turn and look the other way. So it should be no wonder why China's influence is growing. It's it's obvious these these isolationist tactics of not engaging don't work. These countries aren't changing their ways. They're not going to change their ways. And, and, and especially they're, going, they're, they're even probably going to dig in more when you lack the principle implying, the lack the principles in applying these isolationist tactics. You do it for one, but not the other, and they're both doing similar same things. These countries aren't changing their ways. It's, they're not going to change their ways. 
it's driving our closest neighbors, I say neighbors, not allies, neighbors, into deeper ties with China. So we are getting two undesirable outcomes from this short-sighted policy that continues on. I would rather have some sort of influence in the region, and if that meant engaging with leaders with whom we have an ideological clash with, so be it. At least we're engaging with them. I'd rather have that than having no influence with those countries within our region who are right on our borders, who's right on our doorsteps, because of a budding authoritarian superpower that has bought that influence and is now getting closer and closer to our shores. We were worried about the Soviet Union having influence in Cuba at one point. We had the whole Cuban missile crisis in the 60s. Now imagine how much more worry there would be and will be when you have Chinese-influenced countries surrounding the United States, and let's say heavily influenced. Canada's gun-grabbing prime minister has a pretty cozy relationship with Beijing, and it's to the point where he was going to allow joint military exercises in Canada until there was a massive pushback on that. There's a number of Central and South American countries, as well as Caribbean nations, that have been increasing ties with China. Here we have China basically moving into our hemisphere. They're buying influence. They're listening to these countries. They're, uh, they're, I guarantee you the Chinese aren't giving an inch on their ideology versus these other countries, but they're at least listening to them. They're at least engaging. They're at least having some sort of uh, probably trading relationship. They're investing in infrastructure for these countries. They're, they're buying the influence. So we basically have China moving into our hemisphere. And what are we preoccupied? We're preoccupied with uh, Taiwan and what the Chinese might do there. We're not even looking around our own, uh, outside our own borders and our own hemisphere. We're worried about what the Chinese might do in Taiwan. Our elected officials better start prioritizing the home front. They better start making sure our regional influence is high. Otherwise, we are going to be facing an uphill battle against Chinese influence. And I'm going to say and bet that it's going to be a, a lot a harder to root out than the Soviet Union's influence was, you know, half a century ago here, better than half a century ago. So now if you're listening to the show uh, audio only and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star rating. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or are viewing on Rumble or YouTube, hit that subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the algorithms and the more we are able to spread the truth. All right, finishing up today, I'll bet the Corinne Jean, uh, Jean-Pierre experiment doesn't last a year. She's just she's absolutely horrible as a press secretary. Saki was a liar. We knew that. We knew Saki was a liar. But at least she showed the ability to think quickly on her feet and was at least somewhat prepared to answer questions. She could, she could at least uh, come up with a lie that at least sounded, um, you know, somewhat in the realm of a possibility for whatever question uh, was being thrown her way in, in terms of what the administration's stance was at it. It, w- it would have been a lie, but at, at least it sounded good. Jean-Pierre is neither a skilled liar nor is she prepared. That's been obvious 
I think from day one. Now I have a Red State article here by the great Bonchi titled Corinne Jean-Pierre falls flat on her face trying to explain Joe Biden's latest abuse of power. I got a couple pe- uh, a couple topics here, let's call it, from uh, I'm going to cover from this piece. One being how just awful Jean-Pierre is a, as a uh, press secretary. The other is, is in relation to the, um, the latest power grab by Joe Biden. So the latest Joe Biden proclamation is that he's going to use the Defense Production Act to prioritize solar panel production. Why? What does that have to do with, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with national security, and that's what the Defense Production Act is for. So here's, I got this from the piece, so we're going to tackle the, the how bad Jean-Pierre is at her job first, and then we'll, we'll tackle this defense production proclamation on solar panels from Biden. So here's the first part from this piece. Jean-Pierre could have asserted that current energy prices and U.S. dependence on foreign sources denote a national security risk. That wouldn't have been untrue, but it would have at least sounded, uh, or excuse me, that wouldn't have been true, but it would have at least sounded like a justification. So Banchi's a better press secretary than Jean-Pierre. I mean, she came up with that. Yeah, it's she could have asserted that energy prices and dependence on foreign sources are a national security risk. She could have said that. It wouldn't be true. It would have been a lie, but it would have sounded better. So continue on, Banchi writes, instead, because again, she's so bad at this, she fell back on a generic talking point about delivering for the American people as if she's still a talking head on cable news. It's like she doesn't realize she's in the big leagues now. So, so she just shows how unprepared she is. So uh, I may get a, asked a tough question. So um, I'm going to just give some sort of generic peanut butter bland. Yeah, we're going to deliver for the American people. What does that even mean? That's that's as bad as Biden's three point so supposed three point plan to battle inflation, which. You look at it, maybe Corinne Jean-Pierre wrote that for him, too. Uh, how, uh, delivering for the American people, how? I'm not demanding solar power. A lot of others I know aren't demanding solar power. How's that delivering for me? I don't, I, I don't care. I want my lights on, my air conditioner running, without interruption. That's what I want. And I know solar power is not going to get me there. So, so how is this? How is this invoking the the Defense Production Act on solar panels, uh, delivering for the American people? How does that help our national security? It, it just shows she doesn't understand anything about uh, our laws, about the Defense Production Act in particular here. Because if she did, she would have known that the Defense Production Act is for. Uh, for national defense purposes, for when we have our actual national security threatened. Instead, she said, well, well we're going to use it just to deliver for the American people. My, How long are you going to last in this job? So I look at this, and this is this whole thing. She's delivering for the, she says, Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre says, delivering for the American people. It's more like it's delivering for the green activists that have the loudest voice right now in the Democrat Party. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that solar panels do not represent a national defense risk in any way, shape, or form, thereby making this another unlawful power grab by Biden. I, she, I, I don't get it. 
how I, I thought, you know, we had seen the 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 bottom of the ineptitude from people within this administration, but it, it continues to get exponentially worse every day. And Banchi has a great take on this. So here's what she had to say about this this power grab. Says uh, the the president does not have the power to use the Defense Production Act simply to deliver for the American people. Right. Remember, we are talking about government inver- intervention into the private market, forcing companies to produce certain products. Biden is not a dictator, and this is not a communist country. It's an egregious abuse of power to use the DPA to pursue partisan energy policies when the nation is not facing an imminent threat. And know as much as they hurt, high prices are not an imminent threat. They hurt. Well, <laughs> they hurt politically as well as, as in people's wallet. That's, that's, that's why you see Biden trying to do this. I think there's another reason. I think there's another reason as well here. I'll get to it in a minute. So this further shows the ineptness of Biden. What's, what solar production occurs on our shores that can be influenced by invoking the DPA? What are you going to do? Are you going to tell General Motors you've got to convert your factories over to solar panel production? Is that, what, is that what his plan is here? Ford, you've got to stop making F-150s. You're going to make solar panels now. How is, how is he going to get parts here? How is he going to make those companies convert their plant? Because that's what the Defense Production Act has, it can do. It says, I, as a government, because we have some sort of national security threat, I'm going to go to these manufacturers in country and say, we need you to stop making cars and you need to start making tanks. That's the intention of it. Or I think Trump invoked it to say, we need you to stop making cars and start making uh, um, ventilators. That's the intention of it. It's not to uh, pander to, to some eroding base of your party to try and cash in on a, uh, uh, yet another campaign promise that you had no business making because you had no realistic expectation of, of, of cashing in on it. So now the the, the uh, kind of the political hurt is huge, and he's trying to stem that tide. We are six months, five months now, five months out from midterms. And they know, the Democrats know it's going to be a, a major wipeout. He's trying to avoid that here. He's trying to cash in on, on, on uh, campaign promises he made that there was no realistic expectations that he was going to be able to keep them. He just inept. So what's he, you, he's not going to be able to tell General Motors, you've got to stop making uh, Corvettes and now you've got to start making solar panels. There, there's very little production on our shores of solar panels that can be influenced by even invoking the DPA. All the parts come from overseas. Every component, I'll say just about every component, there might be some here made on our shores. So let's say just about every component, so we're not absolutist about it. And truthfully, the vast majority, if not all, of the finished panels are made in Asia, specifically China. So invoking the DPA does absolutely nothing because it doesn't apply to foreign production. He can't tell plants in China, you need to make solar panels. 
I mean, I know Joe and the rest of the lunatics in the Democrat Party are trying to erase our borders, but, eh, you know, countries still seem to like theirs, so they're not going to listen to anything a doddering old man posing as the leader of the free, the once free world says. Biden nor his handlers understand where things are made. And that's not a shock. No one in this administration understands basic economics. They're still wondering why inflation's so high. They don't understand basic economics. So they certainly aren't going to grasp global supply chains, nor do they seem to understand the meaning of jurisdiction. Again, evoking the DPA does absolutely nothing for solar panel production in this country because there's very little to none of it that happens on our shores. And we have very little to no capability to tell, uh, to ramp up componentry production. If we were to say, okay, Ford, convert your F-150 plant to a, a solar panel plant. We have no way to feed that plant. So basically here, this boils down to a few things. Jean-Pierre is in over her head and probably should resign sooner rather than later and save whatever personal dignity she has left. She, she's just terrible. She can't think on her feet. She just comes up with general talking points and thinks that's going to placate people. We're not dumb, Corrine Jean-Pierre. We're not dumb. We see through it. We know that doesn't mean anything when you say, uh, you know, we're going to do it for the American people. It, I don't even want it. If I want solar panels, I'll go buy some, put some on my house myself and get off the grid. We have... Biden, who thinks he's some sort of dictator who can speak policy into being and, and it will be made so. So he thinks, well, I'm just going to invoke the, the DPA and, and we'll make solar panels. He, what the hell are these people thinking? He, he has no idea. And lastly, this, this latest stunt, this latest stunt to invoke the DPA and say we're going to, you know, we're invoking it because solar panels are a national threat or a national security threat. It, this this is nothing more than a political stunt to placate the greenies so they'll be motivated to head to the polls in November and vote for Democrats. The Dems are shedding key parts of their coalition in droves. And, and that's a fact. Uh, blacks, uh, Latinos, Hispanics, whatever, Asians, they are leaving the Democrat Party in droves. The last thing they need is to see the fringes of their party to start to jump ship as well. Maybe not jump ship, but not turn out to vote. Not be motivated to turn out to vote. The only thing the Dems still haven't gotten it through their heads is that pandering to the fringes do not get people into office on a large scale in this country. Sure, you'll get some sprinkled in here or there in some of the more call it crazier districts, I guess. or I don't know. It's some of these people, I look at how'd you even get in office? You know, but the thing is, they keep going down that path further and further. They keep pandering to these fringes, and they keep going. They keep going down that path further and further. And you know what? It's not going to lead to just major losses in this no this November, this coming November. It's going to be a general a generational shift in the politics of this country. That is where they're heading. They they have not reversed course. They seem to refuse to reverse course. It's not only going to cost them this November, but I, it's going to be generational because I don't see them even past this November. They're going to look at it. They're going to say, what did we do wrong? And they won't realize it. They, if they didn't realize it after 2020, when uh, you had members of their own 
caucus saying, hey, we've got to knock this off because it almost cost me my seat. It's going to cost them their seat this time around because they haven't knocked it off. They've doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on calling us domestic terrorists. They've trouble, double, triple and quadrupled down on the white supremacy, on the racist, on the open borders. They, didn't, they, they don't see that there's a problem. And I don't think even with a rout in November they're going to see, I don't think they're going to realize there's a problem. The problem is, is who's sitting at the top of the Democrat Party. And until that changes and the message changes, they're going to be in for a world of hurt in this country, I think. America isn't, it's not an extreme country. We are very much centrist country. Now, some of us might be left, some of us might be right, but by and large, on whole, we are a centrist country. And once we figure out that, that we, we need to, to ignore and quit blindly following these parties and say, okay, look, what does this candidate stand for? Yeah, they might be a Democrat, but what do they actually stand for? What does this candidate stand for? They're, yeah, they're a Republican, but do I agree with most of what they stand for? And that's how we should be looking at it. We need to be doing our homework on these candidates. Because it's obvious the parties, now in particular the, the Democrats, they really don't understand what's going on. The Republicans are just as bad. They're just as bad as you know in terms of ignoring what's actually going on in this country. Right now they see an, uh, an opportunity to capitalize, but the, the pendulum will swing. It, it always does. Until you get these, you know, these uh, we the people in the middle here really are the ones that need to stand up and say, we're taking our country back. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. If I agree with you, I'm going to vote for you. Now, you know, full disclosure, you all know I, I lean to the conservative side. So, you know, I'm probably going to vote one way over the other. That's just the way it is. That's how it is. But I don't blindly follow a party either. A candidate over party. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.